Welcome to I Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome to I Communicate. I am your guest host today, Kyra Altman. I Communicate is about providing guidance on communication challenges related to professional, personal, and generational relationships. We coach emotionally intelligent communication that bridges communication gaps in the workplace between leaders, teams, and individuals by helping people build confidence, overcome their fears, and advocate for what they want and need. Today, we will be focusing our attention on the importance of vulnerability, empathy, and emotional intelligence in an HR setting or through HR-related lenses. My name is Kyra Altman, and I am the CEO and president of Lead Inc., a mental health and diversity, equity, and inclusion training, coaching, and consulting company. In my almost 10 years of working in scaling lead, I've had the pleasure of training members of the Northeast HR Association. In both 2021, and 22, the Northeast HR Association prioritized proactive DEI and mental wellness education through LEAD for its members and even recently launched a mental health resource page. Tracy Burns, the CEO of the Northeast HR Association, is our esteemed and valued guest today. Welcome, Tracy. She'll be sharing her take on the importance of vulnerability, empathy, and emotional intelligence through an HR and leadership lens. Tracy, how are you doing today? Well, good morning, Kara. I'm well, thank you. Happy Friday. Thank you. Happy Friday. And I know you've had a really busy week leading up to here. So tell us a little bit about how you're arriving to today's podcast. Sure, sure. So um, last night we held our uh, 27th annual diversity and awards gala. Um, And we had uh, not done this event in person for two years. So as I said to everyone last night, it was our 25th, 26th and 27th anniversary and um, it was a really great event. I am, um, as I mentioned to you before, I'm going to be soaking my feet later today mm-hmm. because I was in heels for several hours. But it was a really, it was really great to be back in person this year. Our featured keynote was Abby Wambach, and she was just incredibly relatable and funny. And um, my email is flooded this morning with all kinds of, um, you know, response feedback, if you will, about. Um, from the attendees last night and how good it felt to be back in person and what Mm. great energy there was. So I'm coming to you um, feeling proud, um, maybe a little tired, but also really excited. It just really felt really good. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really excited, and I'm excited to be on this podcast this morning. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I I think what makes those moments even more special is when you work your entire career to advocate for these important issues and these topics and this training, and then you're able to really sit there and enjoy the fruits of your labor. It is such a transformative experience. And I know you've spent nearly 20 years working in corporate HR, holding leadership positions in a variety of industries, including financial services, higher ed, healthcare, publishing, food and beverage. Is there anything that you don't do, Tracy? (laughs) Well, um, my last 12 years at NARA have been, you know, what I think people would have considered sort of a career shift, but it really isn't. It's been a nice bridge having 
been, as you said, in, in corporate HR for almost 20 years. My role at NARA has allowed me to stay, you know, really connected, obviously, to the profession and the community, but with a little bit of a different lens. And so majority of my time now is spent, you know, <clears throat> continuing to position NARA well in the marketplace as it pertains to all of the functions of HR, which have definitely evolved and changed even in the last two years. And really making sure that the HR professionals in our region have what they need in order to lead the organizations that that they're working in. That makes so much sense. And thinking about HR through a communication lens, what has changed? What are the things that you've noticed shifting within the industry as a whole? So I would say, you know, there's this evolution of HR where it, it it was originally created, if you will, out of the labor movement, right? And so it, it, it was positioned as really the, the policy police, the back office, back end, you know, hire, fire, sort of a profession. And over the years has definitely evolved, you know, into more of a business partner, co- consultative role, if you will, with a lot more exposure strategically. And certainly now with the pandemic, it has been really front and center. So a lot of the C-suite colleagues are looking at HR saying, okay, what are we doing next? Whereas that may or may not have happened prior to the pandemic. Sure. And in that, communication has become key. Yeah. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about that. How is communication key in this change? And when it comes to supporting folks through these adaptations they might experience? Sure. Well, I think some of the things that we saw in the pandemic included the need for transparency and, to your point, vulnerability, Mm -hmm. because this isn't something that we've been through before. And so the the willingness and ability to step into the role and to be really brave and to actually communicate in a way that was different than before, specifically around, we don't know, you know, being able to stand up and say, we don't, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And in the, um, as a, as opposed to not no communication. So it was more proactive communication. It was more transparency around things like, how are we going to keep people safe? How are we going to bring them back to the office? What kind of flexibility can we offer? And, and all of those in an environment with so much ambiguity, it required a lot and requires a lot of authenticity Again, transparency, I think the willingness to, you know, be vulnerable and say, we don't know where we're going. This is the decision today, but we might have to change that tomorrow or next month. Mm-hmm. Um, all have been different for everyone in the C-suite, I think, and any, any leader, really. But I think with HR in particular, the communication and the frequency of communication and the, and the way in which we're communicating definitely changed in that respect. It, it, oh, there's a lot yeah. of fear base in the pandemic, right? And so there was a need to almost over-communicate. Mm, yeah, I think you're you're touching on so many important and fascinating things right now. And some words that are standing out to me are bravery, vulnerability, um, and even proactive. I, I think that that is something that is so unique to just 2022 and what we've experienced over the last few years I don't think I heard anyone talking about bravery in the workplace or even in HR prior to the last few years and how they've affected us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I I think it 
in a way, though, it has been the silver lining for me. I think it is that it, this has been an opportunity for HR to really step into the limelight, right, and be and show leadership in a way that maybe they hadn't before, depending on you know their organization, organizational structure. You know, we as HR professionals, again, because of the way that the role evolved, don't always have that opportunity. Sometimes it can still feel like we're, you know, the puppet masters, right? Sure. You know, I've written a lot of speeches for for CEOs. And so this is an opportunity for us to really step in and, you know, to your point, show some vulnerability and bravery in a way that um, helped keep people engaged Mm -hmm. and help try to sort of dissipate some of the fear that people were feeling. Definitely. Um, well, and not just leaning on policy and procedure, but really kind of leaning into culture, assuming it was good. <laughs> definitely. And I think what's really interesting as well right now is it, the conversation is shifting from it's not just about HR professionals um, promoting or leveraging vulnerability for the staff that they are overseeing or working with or supporting, but we're also starting to see conversations around the mental health, the well-being, the work-life balance of HR professionals themselves because they oh, are experiencing these unridiculous amounts of burnout and compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and all of this stuff. And so it's so interesting because that vulnerability piece is both I can see an external projection, something that you're externally helping to elevate in your company, but also internally for HR professionals, they are also having to be more vulnerable to share what is their capacity, what are their needs, when are they feeling burnt out and need to take that break. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Where does the balance come in and how does that vulnerability change for yourself versus someone else you might be supporting? You know, that's a really great um, point. And when we started on this mental health initiative, as you mentioned, the resource page and the programming that we've been doing, it really was with a focus on two things, the HR professional themselves and what can we do to promote self-care, prevent burnout, and, you know, and make sure that they're, they're able to make these tough decisions and, and to have difficult conversations. Um, because they are burned out, I will tell you. Sure. <laughs> you know, it, it, you can see it on their faces. Because it was, it's a very big. It's always been a big role, but in this time that we've been in in the last couple of years, it's really been front and center. And you're talking about people. You're talking about, you know, again, you're talking about the the fear of people, and that that I think is a different feeling, right? And things got really personal. Yeah. During COVID really quickly. And so it really is, again, our focus has been both, you know, how do we help HR professionals from getting burned out and taking care of themselves? And then how do we, what kind of resources and training and tools can we give them to help the people that, you know, in the organizations that they're in Yeah, and without being clinicians, right? Sure. So there's that line too around how do you help someone, but you're not a therapist. Um, And in HR, we have always sort of had this mantra where, you know, at some point, and it's gotten a lot better, but when it gets personal, it goes to EAP, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's, you know, that just doesn't work anymore. Um, Yeah. Well, so what's so so interesting about that is, you know, an EAP is 
first of all, not offered to every employee. And you know what? We're going to get deeper into this when we come back. If you would like to call the show, call 508-871-7000. Tracy, we will be right back. And thank you so much for your insightful comments so far. So we're here today with Tracy Burns, CEO of the Northeast HR Association. We have been talking about self-care, mental health, communication, vulnerability, bravery, all of these incredible topics that intersect with one another. And I think where we're going to go next is talking a little bit about this shift um, industry-wide that we see where employers and managers and executives are saying to their employees, yes, we do care about your mental health and we want you to take care of yourself, so practice self-care. But in a sense, they're actually putting that burnout on the employee and not offering the structures to give real time for that self-care to even happen. So, Tracy, I would love to hear your thoughts on that and some of the challenges there. Even if your communication is spot on, if you don't have the structures to back it up, then what? Absolutely. It's, it's almost worse because you're telling people one thing, but you're doing another or, you're, or your structure isn't supporting. So you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth, right? And that actually makes it worse. I think it creates a lot of distrust. So it, 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 I think the first thing is really role modeling. So, you know, as we do in all aspects of leadership, if you're telling someone to um, to take care of themselves, right, you have to take care of yourself as a leader as well and show that and not be emailing at, you know, 1230 at night or not taking any days off. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really starts, I think, with role modeling and reinforcing what you're telling your, your team to do. Secondly, you have to build the structure in order to do that. So if... if you know, you want people to take time off, you have to encourage them to take that time off and build the space for them to do that and not have them feel like if they take a day or a week or whatever it is off that they're going to come back to a big pile of work. Because as we've seen across the board, you know, the lines are blurred between personal and professional, especially those of us that, that are working from home. Mm. You really never, you really never feel like you're off the clock. Sure. And it's harder to carve out at those transition times. It used to be a commute. And now it's, you know, the transition is going from, you know, upstairs to downstairs. <laughs> and so making sure that you're really, you know, pushing your employees to to work normal hours, whatever mm-hmm. that is. I mean, it's nice to have the flexibility to have some breaks in the day that might be longer than they normally, you yeah. know, or had been in the past. But well, really you know, helping build that structure so that you're not, you know, I, I've seen companies, you know, no meetings after noon on Friday, no meetings mm-hmm. before nine o'clock, no meetings after five, building some of that structure in is important. Definitely. And I think it's, it goes beyond just that initial structure, but it's the maintenance of those boundaries. It's the maintenance of that structure too. And so, for example, right, if it's a no meetings on Friday, but all of a sudden there's this huge priority that comes up and you have to have a meeting on Friday, if everyone in that office says, well, this is, you know, a priority, we have to do it, and then you disregard that boundary, you're basically normalizing this, you know, disregard of these structures in place, and then you're building a habit of not actually living up to those practices that you want for your team. So I think there's a lot of bad habits that form after you set a boundary or you try to set that intentional habit and then you fall back on it. Um, I think there's also an interesting balance between 
how do you look at each employee as an individual and communicate that with them and give them the support that they need to work remotely or work in the hours that they want to work? In my mind, if the work gets done, right, who cares when you do it? However, if somebody is a night owl and is doing all of their work at night and then the rest of the team is getting these emails at 2, 3, 4 a.m. versus that employee scheduling that email, let's say, for 9 a.m. to hit your inbox, now we have somebody that's getting what they need in flexibility, but the other employees, now their boundaries are being um, disrespected at the same time. So what are your thoughts on that balance and how you can look at individuals with that individual lens? Absolutely. And I think that that's the thing that COVID forced us to do very quickly, right, is that when when organizations were looking at how to respond to the pandemic, um, a lot of organizations obviously sent everyone home. You know, the first thing is how do we get everybody set up, all of that. But then then it becomes really personal, right? It's not everyone has the same home life or the same structure. You know, there's people that have really little kids, people that have teenage kids, people that have, you know, elderly parents or other people that they're that they're supporting or that they might live with. And so those are individual conversations that you have to have. You can't just say everyone that has a child, you know, wants to work at home or everybody that, you know, used to travel doesn't want to travel anymore. All of those things that used to be sort of blanket, vanilla, Mm -hmm. whatever term that you want to use, broad brush, you know, this is our quote unquote policy, had to really be thrown out the window and say, I need to pick up the phone and have an individual conversation with John about what it is that's going to you know, keep him engaged, make sure that he, he's getting what he needs from the organization, make sure that he's doing what he needs to do for himself and his family. And so that's a heavier lift. And that's, that's not really an HR thing. That's a leadership thing, right? Sure. And, and managers needing to communicate on an individual basis is, it, it, that's a huge change, um, especially for large organizations. Yeah. So understanding what the individual need is and having, again, really personal conversations. And I'm not insinuating that everybody was like robotic before, but, mm-hmm. you know, we've gotten to know our teams at a completely different level. Sure. And I think that's a positive thing. But I do recognize that from a leadership standpoint, um, anyone who's managing people, mm-hmm. that that's, that's a, a significant shift. Yeah, definitely. So on that same note, I want to share uh a personal anecdote of an experience I had lead over the last year over the last few years has worked with a company in DC called acquired data solutions and we've certified their staff in corporate mental health the nation's first workplace mental health certification and done some other work with them as well and their HR leader one of their HR leaders um, Miriam who's this incredible advocate leader within her space her title on LinkedIn is actually resourcing the humans or humaning the resources with a question mark and i thought that was so interesting right like are we resourcing the humans or are we humaning the resources what are your thoughts on that i love that because i think you know if you even look at the history of of hr the hr profession and the titles that have sort of evolved over time we're Mm. even seeing you know, a shift of anything called human resources. You're seeing a lot of people in the title. Yeah. And I think that that's a really significant shift. And I do think even, you know, within the HR profession, um, 
making sure that it, this sort of goes back to the compassion and, and actually treating individuals as a whole person and not just someone who, you know, who is a certain way or has certain, you know, wants and needs within the workforce. It's, you know, we don't flip a switch when sure. we, you know, walk into the office or, or um, turn on our laptops in the morning. So I, I think that, and again, really, it, you know, it, it, people are going to feel better if they're treated as an individual, as if they're treated, obviously, as humans. And sometimes I think in corporate, we lose sight of that. Mm, we look yep. at the bottom line. We look at policies and procedures that are going to mitigate risk and not necessarily support, you know, humans, if yeah. you will. And so it, it is also, it's also just moving, you know, from, um, as I said, the, the profession has gone from, I think, personnel, right, into human resources and then, you know, consulting, business partners, all that other corporate language, if you will. And now we're saying chief people officers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good place to land. Yeah, it feels better. And I think it it speaks to really, you know, what we're focused on as a profession, which is making sure that people feel like they can be themselves at work. This goes back to diversity, inclusion and belonging. Yeah. So Um, showing up as your whole self. Definitely. So humans versus people and this written communication and all of this stuff. And we're going to dive deeper into some written communication changes, even the word chief, right? I mean, I am Leeds chill executive officer for a reason. I used to be our chief executive officer and that's changed. So we'll talk more about this when we come back. Tracy, thanks for your insight so far and enjoy the break. And we are back. This is Kyra Altman, and I'm here with Tracy Burns from the Northeast HR Association. And we've been talking about communication with within HR. We've been talking about leadership, mental health, lots of great things. And I want to circle us back to written communication in HR and how that's changing. I was mentioning before we went to break that my role used to be chief executive officer, and now it's actually chill executive officer. And we were also talking about how we were going from HR to people-related jargon and language and roles and titles and things like that. So with that said, why is there this need to change our language in order to better support people at work. Where is the power in that? I I have many thoughts, obviously, but Tracy, I want to hear from you. I think, you know, and you probably agree with me, words are powerful. And, you know, I'm not sure there's a profession that has more more jargon than HR. Yeah, (laughs) honestly. I I have had CEOs, you know, talk, look at me and say, I have no idea what you just said. (laughs) So, um, and, and so I think the need comes from, being more relatable mm. and not leaning on our own acronyms and our own HR speak in order to be both authentic and again relatable. So if sure. if the if the organization doesn't understand what you're saying because you're leaning too much on corporate speak, and as corporate culture has, you know, I, I remember being in an organization that had you know, 35 odd acronyms that, you know, I would give to the new hires. I would say, here's a sheet of all the acronyms that we have in our organization. All the business units have their own acronyms. And so uh, from a culture perspective, I think sometimes that just sort of evolves. It's not necessarily a bad thing. The bad thing is when it feels like you're not really talking to them, that you're just using corporate speak. And and so I I think titles are uh, fall into that as well. 
several years ago, I used to work at the Boston Beer Company, which is Sam Adams. Yep. And at one point, the CFO was lobbying to have his title change to chief bean counter. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, and, and really yeah. because of the levity yeah. of it. And then also just to, I think, again, feel more relatable. We talk about the C-suite sure. and, you know, the mystery around that. And so I think it's important, you know, whether it's written or verbal, to find ways to relate to people, to a variety of people, and also not offend, yep. obviously. Yeah, so I think you're saying so many important things right now. I think one thing that you're mentioning is acronyms, and it's such a simple thing that most individuals, I think, don't think twice about. Because if you've been using an acronym for 10 years and there's a new hire, you might not think, oh, this person might not know what that acronym stands for. And one of the most basic ways I believe HR professionals and leaders in general can be inclusive with their language is by actually speaking that entire name or title or whatever the acronym is standing for. And this is something that's actually changed drastically for me. I mean, Lead hosts monthly free webinars for corporate professionals, HR professionals. And every time I say DEI, I will slow down to say diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and belonging. And it's every single time because even though this is what my brain is in all the time, it's not fair to assume that other people also know that jargon. And so as an inclusive best practice, I think that you bringing this up is such a simple and innovative way that leaders can communicate effectively. On this note of changing titles and changing language, I think that there is this um, normalization we need to have with mistake making as well as with things changing and you learn better, you know better to do better in time. And I really hope that HR professionals can get to the place where they are not afraid to say or do the wrong thing because they know that part of practicing allyship, part of being inclusive is doing something, right, interrupting injustice, doing something, helping support folks with whatever skills you have, and then learning after to support yourself in the future. So I want to hear your take on that and what you think we need to do to help folks normalize that mistake making. Absolutely. And I will say this just from my lens and having been in corporate HR, I feel like this, that the expectations of HR are higher than perhaps other parts of the organization. And so there is a perceived need to be buttoned up, Um, a perceived need. I mean, obviously, always want to be as objective as possible. Yeah. And I often felt like, you know, the employees felt like, you know, we were the HR team was too aligned with management. The managers always felt we were too aligned with the employees. So there is certainly that balance, but I think, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I I would have made more mistakes or been more transparent about my mistakes. There's always a a shield there that I'm not sure I felt like the other, you know, accounting, finance, sales, marketing hat. Perhaps they felt that way, but I certainly felt that, you know, I needed to be a little more buttoned up and a little bit more um, reserved. Yeah. And it was really hard. And so I'm wondering if that's where this vulnerability piece comes back in too, right? Because to make mistakes, to be able to, especially to make mistakes in this cancel culture that we have, you are being vulnerable. You are putting yourself out there, being brave and 
potentially going to be called out for doing or saying the wrong thing, even if your intentions are great and even if you're simply operating on the information that you have. And so I think that vulnerability piece is coming back in. And I think the biggest irony of this whole thing is usually when something, I say in air quotes, bad happens at work, it's, oh, call HR, right? But why isn't HR also given the chance to learn and do better and evolve with the people that we're trying to support? Absolutely. And I think that would make the HR function and the HR team uh, more, again, I keep using the word relatable, but I, Mm. I, I feel like as I reflect, and even I'm sure today, that there is this expectation that we're almost not even human because you're, you're constantly, you know, again, from a, either a role model perspective or the decisions that you're making, right, are, mm-hmm. um, are usually pretty visible. And so I, I think that there just has been this pattern and maybe not in the last couple of years as much because I think that we've all needed to be vulnerable. But I, I, as I reflect back again on my time in corporate, I certainly didn't feel that way. And yeah. anything in time something bad happened, whether it was a mistake that we made or something, you know, on a more individual or personal level, I, I didn't talk about it. Sure. And I, again, I think that's something I would definitely do differently is to to um, to make people feel like they could really trust me and that I you know, I understood and could empathize and yeah. be compassionate. And I'm and I'm not sure that that was always the case. Well, so what's interesting, and I think that what you're saying makes so much sense here, Brene Brown, um, who I am a fan of, I like some of her stuff. She oh, love her. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I like some of her stuff, but she um, she says in this incredible video that's free on YouTube, she says, um, vulnerability is the last thing that we try to show to people. However, when we meet someone new, it's the first thing we look for in them to connect. And I think that that's so interesting, right? It's the last thing we want to show, but it's the first thing that we look for. And that vulnerability piece, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. It's it's a culture shift. And, and modeling from the top, showing that vulnerability, that authenticity, that really can shift culture in a very big way. Um, so I think I also want to share this quote with you because it relates to what we're talking about here Human resources isn't a thing we do. It's the thing that runs our business. Steve Wynn. What are your thoughts there? I love that quote. Um, and I think that, you know, it is the, usually the biggest um, investment expense, however you want to word it, in terms of an organization. So, and, and yet we tend to focus on all kinds of other business things versus taking care of people. Again, it, in, up until this last couple of years, and certainly now during the great resignation, the focus is all on talent and, you know, engaging them and retaining them and Mm -hmm. recruiting them and all of that. So I do think that the employees of an organization are the heart and soul. And so, and the function of human resources or whatever our next evolution of titles becomes is really what will remain a competitive advantage, right? Um, And, and you know, we know it's a candidate's market right now. So I think that um, really understanding what employees need and, you know, there's generational differences, as mm-hmm. you know, and really under- getting a, your arms around that and um, making sure that, you know, the culture is conducive to, you know, whatever people are looking to, to 
you know, challenges that they have at home right. or professional, you know, challenges of, or challenging work environment, things like that is really um, where we're headed. Yeah. And I think we've been headed there for a while, but the, the pandemic just sped that up. Right. And you're right. It is a worker's market right now. And people are feeling empowered to leave their jobs. And it's funny. I mean, lead right now, we're growing rapidly. And as we've been hiring to meet that demand, every single person that we've been interviewing is currently employed. Like these are not folks that are unemployed looking (laughs) for jobs. They are. And some of them even email us and send in their information with their existing work email. And it blows my mind. Like it has, I have never interviewed folks who are currently at other jobs in the way that I have in 2022. So with that said, we're going to talk a little bit about when we come back, how to keep people, how to balance that retention with recruitment of talented folks um, and diverse folks in the workplace. So thank you, Tracy, and enjoy the break. And we are back with Tracy from the Northeast HR Association CEO. Welcome back. And for our last segment today of radio, we are talking about how do we get people to stay? How do we get people to not be searching for jobs while working for an existing place, right? Because we know that chronic stress, we know that a lack of respect, poor communication, these things do lead to people leaving. And it is a worker's market right now. So with that said, Tracy, how do we get people to stay? And how do we communicate that we value them and we want to support them in really tangible, real ways? You know, that's the million-dollar question, right? And I, I think that what employers need to recognize is that there, there will be some people who leave regardless of what you do. Mm. And so the, you have to be comfortable with some measure of turnover because yeah. people will be doing it. I mean, we've had sort of this um, crisis of self, right, in the last couple of years. People, even Abby Wambach said yesterday, you know, I woke up a couple of months ago and, and said to my wife, what am I doing? You know, what, what, and and what is what I'm doing? Does it matter? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's more specifically related to gender pay equity and soccer. And, and so, you know, obviously when the settlement came out for the the current team in February, she was like, well, that's great. You know, and it sort of reinforced what she's been doing in that space, but also there's still so much more. And so I think there's this sort of individual um, piece of uh, all of us that's saying like, you know, life's too short and you can't really counter that. And so, you know, whatever percentage that is of the people that leave. And then, so then there's the other piece, which is how do you create an environment and the environment can be defined in a lot of different ways where people want to stay. And there are a couple of key things. I think there's the social aspect and do I work around and for people that challenge me, that I want to be around, that, um, you know, that I respect. Yeah. And, and that is, based in hiring, but also there's a leadership component to that as well and making sure that we're building cultures that have a strong sense of community and that um, people feel like they're included and that people actually really care for each other. And then there's the work itself, certainly. And, you know, there's, I think, two aspects to that. One is, is it challenging work? And does it feel meaningful? Do I have growth opportunities? And then there's the, you know, the work in the sense of, and, and is, is, it, is there a purpose to it? Sure. Like, you know, maybe I've been in corporate and I, this just isn't my thing anymore. I want to go yep. work for a nonprofit. 
Um, yeah. It, and I think at the end of the day, too, as you just said, normalizing, some people are still going to leave. And that's actually a good thing, right? If they're not the best fit, if they're not contributing to the culture that you're trying to build, that's okay. Or if they are ready for something different, that's okay as well. I think we've seen also as an industry, I think 50 years ago, people had maybe one or two jobs their entire life. And now people are jumping around more. But I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing, as long as you're able to balance that loyalty, that longevity with wanting to listen to your interests and your needs as a human, right? There is that balance there. I think also making meaning about, from jobs, even a job, and, and I bring this back to a story I remember hearing when I was studying human services in undergrad. And that story was, if you ask a bunch of kids outside or adults to pick up trash at a park, they're gonna be like, well, I don't wanna pick up trash at a park. But if you say to those people, listen, you're cleaning up this park so other community members can enjoy and get time outside and spend time with family and have a moment of peace in a really stressful part of their lives, now that picking of trash feels so different, right? So I think that even the jobs where we feel like the job description is maybe not what we would want to do for fun, that making meaning piece really comes into play and I think directly relates to communication as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think meaning and purpose, you know, it, are more important now than they ever have been. And we, Or we've just put them, you know, more at the front center of how we want to spend our time. I and mean, people spend a fair amount of time at work, right? And so I, I it, to your point, it may not even just be the job, but am I part of something bigger? Yep. And how am I making an impact? And so, and I, I also think that it, it gives way to what I think the big trend we're seeing, which is the gig economy, mm -hmm. right? And so people mm -hmm. are not even really looking sometimes for full employment. They're looking to expand their portfolio of skills and yep. get different experiences at different organizations. And so I think that sort of unwritten employment contract is, significantly shifting. Um, yeah. It has definitely in the last seven or eight years, but again, more so in the last couple of years where people want the flexibility and freedom. And if they're not getting that in their cur current environment, they're, they're going to go create it for themselves. Right. Again, I don't right. think it's a bad thing. I think we need to adapt yes. as both as organizations in our structure yep. and as leaders, because it makes a difference in how you communicate. Definitely. And I think that what you're saying, too, is, you know, if it's if it's if you're not getting what you need, if you're not feeling that sense of purpose, you are going to go and seek it out in other ways, whether that means you're doing it on paid time, which is probably not great, yes. <laughs> or you're doing it on not paid time. But it's that's where your passion is. So when you actually show up to work, you might not actually be showing up with your full self, right? You might be, you know, th this um, absenteeism versus presenteeism conversation comes up with you can be present, but you still might not be contributing in the way that you could be if you were fully engaged, right? So I think that we are limited in how we can connect with staff. We're limited in our creativity of teams and limited, limited in our success as businesses if we're not engaging folks in this really critical way. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's a big shift, Kara. It's, it's, 
we've run in a certain way, in a certain mindset, the organizational structure. I mean, there's a, a million ways to organize a, a company, and I think most of them are like within five boxes, right? right. Hierarchy, flat, matrix, centralized, decentralized, whatever it is. And I think it really, we have to think completely outside of that, that yep. organizational structure in order to engage people in, in the way that they, that's going to make them stick around. Sure. And I think, I think what you're saying too, is we have to be aware of what's going on outside of just the workplace for folks, for members of our team. And honestly, for members of our workplace community, it is a community. We do spend most of our lives working that that needs to be spoken out and addressed in a very real way. Um, I think it also really brings back the importance of modeling and of that leadership from the top, modeling, taking care of yourself, modeling, even diving into those interests in work or or bringing that creativity to a meeting, even if it's a little bit off topic. Like, how do you how do you think leaders should be modeling this culture that they want to see in their staff? I think it, it boils down to just being human. And I know mm. that sounds really simplistic, but it's really a matter of connection. And sometimes the most powerful way to connect is to talk about a mistake yeah. and to be vulnerable. It, it, and it's, it's interesting, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, you, that's the last thing you want to do, sure. but it's the thing that connects you. Sure. It really does. It, it's, um, you know, the successes are great, but if you can, you can raise your hand and say, you know, I just made a huge mistake. Yep. And here's and, how I can learn from that. And here's how we can all learn from that and move forward together. I think that is really the takeaway there. And I think what you're also speaking to, which came up earlier when we were speaking, is the making wellness, making productivity, making HR-related things digestible and translating them in a way that, that makes sense and makes meaning with folks that work with us. And I think... Part of that is also normalizing mental health challenges, normalizing the fact that the pandemic is a collective trauma. It has lowered our stamina. It has lowered our tolerance for stress. And as a result of that, we can't necessarily work nine to five straight hours. Like we might need more breaks. We might need a walk outside. We might need other things. And that is shifting dramatically right now. So with all of that said, and as we're thinking about next steps, what would be the one piece of advice you want to give to listeners about using communication to transform these culture and these cultures and transform the well-being of staff? Well, I, I think it really boils down to transparency. That's at the end of the day, it's really, again, being able to say, we don't know. Yep. Or, I, or, or we I don't know like yet, it. right? We don't know yet also works. And I will find out that answer and we'll do that together. I think the togetherness is huge. Yeah. And I think that the the absence of communication, it it creates this void, as you know, and then people fill that void with their own story. Right. Oh, she must be doing this. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, So So I think it's important. Tracy, thank you so much for your time today. For more information on how to get support from Mindset Go on any of the topics we've talked about today or lead, you can reach out to us, info at mindsetgo.com, info at leadnow.org. Thank you, Ted, uh, for helping us out today, producing. Thanks for listening. And go check out the great things that Nira is doing. Thank you so much again, Tracy.